No, we, we say something different, don't we? Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Last week was special. Starting with Thursday night Seder dinner that our student minister Alex Durbin and her husband Scott led for our middle and high schoolers. Then we celebrated Good Friday to commemorate and remember Jesus' suffering, crucifixion, and death on a cross for our sins. Have you ever stopped to consider why we call it Good Friday? Kind of strange, isn't it? Wouldn't it be better to call it Bad Friday? Terrible Friday? Dark Friday? In many places in the world, it's referred to as Holy Friday. That makes a little more sense than Good Friday to us on the surface, doesn't it? Germans refer to it as Mourning or Sorrowful Friday. It's unique to us, the English speakers, to the English language, to call it Good Friday. So why would we call this holy day good? No one's really sure. The origins are unclear. But what we can say is a very appropriate moniker. The events of that day, culminating in Jesus' death on the cross, brought about the greatest good. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That's why we call it Good Friday. And then on the third day, he rose. Easter, Resurrection Sunday, the culmination of the gospel, the good news. We serve a risen Savior. And we celebrated Jesus' resurrection last Sunday. You remember the words of Yaroslav Pelikan that Craig quoted last week? You might remember? They, kind of, they stuck with me. If Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen... Nothing else matters. Christ is risen indeed. In solidarity, uh, sorry, with our um, Ukrainian brothers and sisters in Christ who are celebrating Easter today. Today is Easter in Ukraine. They use a different calendar. I'm going to say Christ is risen in Russian, and then I want y'all to respond in English. You don't have to do it in Russian. He is risen indeed. And we're going to do it like we do it in Ukraine. So if y'all wouldn't mind standing up, and we're going to do it three times. Y'all ready? We're participating. Christos vas kres. Christos vas kres. Christos vas kres. Thank you, y'all can see. You don't have to stand the whole service. Today, on the heels of Easter, we're moving into a new sermon series called Conversion Factor. And we're going to play fast and loose with the phrase Conversion Factor. I know there's two math teachers in here, both of the last name of Wilson. There could be other math teachers in here that are going to squirm the way we use this phrase, but deal with it. Um, that's the sermon series, Conversion Factor. We're going to take a look at the impact of the resurrection on different folks in the book of Acts, when they were presented with the good news of Jesus Christ and what factors led to their conversion. As missionaries in Ukraine for 22 years, we were always dealing with conversion factors. 
When we moved to Ukraine, the exchange rate or conversion factor for money was four grivna, that's uh, Ukrainian currency, grivna, four grivna to one dollar. When we left Ukraine, it was 27 grivna to a dollar, and today it's probably around 30. The temperature in the town where we live ranged from 98 Fahrenheit in the summer to negative 22 in the winter. We had to learn the conversion factor for Fahrenheit to Celsius. Subtract 32, multiply by 5, and divide by 9. If you ask my and Sasha today, Fahrenheit temperature, they don't know it. They have not learned it yet. But with that in mind, we're going to take a look at conversion factors in the book of Acts. The first four books of the New Testament are commonly referred to as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We always, an old joke is like the Beatles, right? John, Paul, George, and Ringo. The Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they each record the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But the full titles of these books are the Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to Mark, the Gospel according to Luke, the Gospel according to John. And that begs the question, what does Gospel mean? It simply means good news. And that's what Jesus is. He is good news. The good news according to Matthew. The good news according to John. And today in the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at the book commonly referred to as Acts. The full title is actually the Acts of the Apostles. These were Jesus' disciples, and it's the things that they did after Jesus went back to heaven. It's the fifth book of the New Testament, so it follows Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the next one is Acts. And it was written by Luke, the same guy who wrote the gospel according to Luke. He actually wrote one story in two volumes. Volume one is the life of Jesus, and volume two, Acts, is the life of the early church. The book of Acts focuses on the early church and the spread of the good news of Jesus. So we're going to jump in today, and this is how today's story begins in Acts 8, starting in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out. Not a particularly exciting beginning to a story, is it? At least on the surface. But what it does show us is a willingness and openness of Philip to obey God's leading. Who among us would have faulted Philip for just simply asking why? as he slipped on his sandals. But he doesn't question, he obeys. And this beginning reminds me of one of my favorite passages of the Bible. It's in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah finds himself swept up into the throne room of, of God, in God's presence. He's standing before the throne. There are angels flying all around the room, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And the sound of their voices causes an earthquake. The room starts to shake. And Isaiah is terrified. The room is shaking. He's in God's presence. There's angels flying around, and the room starts to fill with smoke. Isaiah knows two things. One, he is completely unworthy to be standing in God's presence. And two, that means he's about to be struck dead. But at that moment, one of the angels flies over to Isaiah. He's got a hot coal in his hand, and he touches Isaiah's lips, and he says, your sins are atoned for. 
And as soon as that happens, Isaiah hears God speak. This is the voice of the Lord. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. I am never not shocked when I read Isaiah's response. Here am I, send me. Isaiah has no idea what he's signing up for. Where are you sending me? For how long? How much do I need to pack? What kind of weather conditions are we talking about? Do I need a sweater? Do I need heavy boots? What am I going to do when I get there? What kind of accommodations are we talking about? Do I get benefits, health care, 401k, etc., etc., etc.? All the questions that I would have asked. Nope. Simply, here am I, send me. And Philip, today we read, does the exact same thing. So now we're going to go nerdy for a moment. Who's excited to go nerdy? Yay. And other people aren't, but again, who cares, right? We're going nerdy anyway. This reminds me of something the hobbit Bilbo Baggins says to his nephew Frodo. It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out of your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. Does that sound like the Christian life? Did you know the Lord of the Rings was written by a Christian? May not have known that. Kevin DeYoung in his book, Just Do Something, has this to say. This, this hurts. We don't take risks for God because we are obsessed with safety, security, and most of all with the future. Does that ring true? We don't take risks for God because we are obsessed with safety, security, and most of all, with the future. There's a guy in the Bible that is just like that. Let's find out what, what God has to say about him. The man in the Bible who said, I will tear down my barn and build a bigger one to store all my stuff so I can take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry, is called a fool by God. That's from Luke. Following God's call, being obedient to him, is a dangerous business. You never know where you might be swept off to. Let's see where Philip lands. Let's start again in Acts 8.26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This was a divine appointment, a miracle, God's great love on display. For God so loved this Ethiopian man that he sent Philip to share the good news of Jesus Christ with him. Who is this Ethiopian man? Although we're not given his name, we actually know a lot about him from this text. This is how Kenneth Kovacs describes him. The eunuch is a curious soul. He's a reader. 
He's a spiritual seeker. He's religious. He has just come from Jerusalem where he worshiped the God of Israel in the temple. But what we need to remember is, as a Gentile, he was not welcome beyond the court of the Gentiles. He was excluded because he was a Gentile. There's also another reason why he would have been excluded from the assembly of God's people. He was a eunuch. If you don't believe me, have a look at Deuteronomy 23.1. He is a high official, the royal treasurer, in the Ethiopian government, serving the queen, Candace, or Kandake. You might have it one of those ways in your Bible. But either way, if it's Candace or Kandake, that's not her name. That's a title like Caesar. A little further into the passage, we'll see that he is being driven in the chariot. He's not driving the chariot. He has servants. We also know personal things about him. He was literate. He was a Gentile follower of the one true God, a God-fearer who, according to Old Testament Deuteronomic law, was not most likely not allowed into the temple in Jerusalem because he was a eunuch. But he had gone to Jerusalem to worship, even though he would be prohibited from entering the temple or participating. And now we find him in his stretch limo chariot. It's big. There's somebody else driving it. He's riding it, sitting, reading. He invites Philip. I see a limo. But he's on his way home, reading aloud from the book of Isaiah. Philip jogs up and asks, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And I love the Ethiopian's response. It's so honest, so genuine. How can I, unless someone explains it to me? And then he offers Philip a ride. Raise your hand if you understand everything in the Bible. Craig raising his hand? Not even Craig? Well, if Craig doesn't, then how does anybody, right? Sometimes we all need help, don't we? And there's no shame in not understanding. Let's keep reading. This is Acts 8, verse 32. This is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shear is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who's the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Who is Isaiah talking about, himself or someone else? That's a good question, isn't it? Anybody got a ready answer? That's a good question. Good and reasonable questions. Jewish religious experts debate this question. Some believe that Isaiah is referring to himself. Others believe that he's referring to the coming Messiah. And still others believe that he's referring to the Israelite nation as a whole, as their corporate suffering. It's a good question. But Philip doesn't hesitate. He starts with this passage from Isaiah to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the Ethiopian, that Jesus is the fulfillment of what the Ethiopian was reading from Isaiah. Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Jesus was deprived of justice. Throughout it all, Jesus was silent. He didn't protest. Philip begins with the passage from Isaiah, 
But he goes further. He goes deeper, which is evidenced by the Ethiopian's next question. Acts 8, 36. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So along the way as they're traveling, they come to a body of water, and the Ethiopian sees it and asks Philip, what's stopping me from getting baptized right here, right now? And although the Bible doesn't record their conversation in its entirety, it's pretty clear from the Ethiopian's question that Philip had explained to him who Jesus is, what he had done for each of us, that Jesus is the Son of God, born of a virgin, fully God and fully human. He suffered and was crucified. He died on the cross for our sins. And on the third day, he rose again. Philip also outlined what is required of a person to become a follower of Jesus. Philip shared with him how we're supposed to respond. Repentance and baptism. That's why he wanted to be baptized. So let's recap. Verse 36. The Ethiopian says, look, here's water. What's stopping me from getting baptized? Let's do this thing. Verse 38, he tells his servant to stop the chariot. Philip and the Ethiopian get into the water, and Philip baptizes them. Verse 39, when they come up out of the water, Philip is whisked away by the Spirit of the Lord, and the Ethiopian climbs back into his big stretch limo chariot, limousine. I said limo twice, beginning and the end. And heads for home, rejoicing along the way. Did we skip anything? Did we miss anything? Anything omitted? Today, this text is a perfect example of why we need to have our Bibles open when somebody else is steering the conversation. So, if you have a Bible with you, or you have a Bible app on your phone handy, open it up and look at 8, 36 through 40. Or, you can look on the screen. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping for audience participation. Do you see anything fishy? Say it louder, what? What about this room? Anybody see anything fishy? 37. What's the deal? Right? Is that a good question? Did you notice that? What I read today, I went from 36 to 38. So verse 37 may or may not be included in the passage in your Bible. If it's not included, then it's most likely a footnote at the bottom of the page. But I'm guessing for most of us, verse 37 has been excised from the text, reduced to a footnote. And come on, who reads footnotes, right? Who reads footnotes? Conspiracy. Cover up. Something gate. Tom Hanks and the Da Vinci Code were right. Well, maybe not so much. Before we tackle the question of verse 37, here's a couple of quotes I found about conspiracies in general. The Bigney... Brzezinski, a Polish-American statesman who served as the U.S. National Security Advisor to President Jimmy Carter, says this about conspiracies. History is much more the product of chaos 
than conspiracies. And Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, an 18th century German author, you may have heard of his book, Faust, you might have had to read it in college, uh, he gives us this insightful nugget. Why look for conspiracies when stupidity can explain so much? Today, we're not talking about conspiracies. So let's look at verse 37. The Ethiopian in verse 36 says, What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And then we get verse 37. Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. The eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The earliest and most reliable biblical manuscripts don't contain this verse. It starts showing up in manuscripts around 500, 600 A.D. When the King James Version, which does include this verse, when it was published in 1611, there were only a handful of manuscripts available to the translators. Now we have access to over 5,000 manuscripts that are both much earlier and more geographically diverse. And in those older manuscripts, these words don't appear. There are indications that these words were a written response, written in the margins of the, of the manuscript to answer the Ethiopian's question. Here's water. What's stopping me from getting baptized? So if you bear with me for a moment, this is pretty cool for a couple of reasons. If you just stop and think about it for a moment. In the first place, we aren't hiding this. This isn't a Vatican conspiracy. It's been removed from the text, but it's probably still on the page down at the bottom of your Bible. No cover-up, no conspiracy, no something gate. Tom Hanks and the Da Vinci Code can relax. Secondly, and this is the one I really like, it's an echo of the past. It's an answer from 1,500 years ago to the question, what must I do? to be saved. 1,500 years ago, when a person wanted to be baptized, they made this statement. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Today, if somebody comes forward to be baptized, Craig will say, repeat after me. Let's do this right now. I like all the participation. Let's do this right now. If somebody wants to be baptized, this is what they're going to say today, right? I'm going to say it, y'all repeat after me. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, my Lord, my Savior, my life. 1,500 years ago and today, we reaffirm Peter's response when Jesus asked him, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. That's Matthew 16. So what were the factors leading up to the Ethiopian's conversion and baptism? One, he was curious. He was seeking God. When he meets Philip on the road, he is returning from a trip to Jerusalem, having worshipped at the temple. Two, he was persistent. When we meet him, he is reading aloud a passage from the book of Isaiah that he does not understand. He's wrestling with it trying to understand who Isaiah is talking about. Three, he makes the most of every opportunity. 
He's going along the road, and he sees a Jewish man. He says, hey, maybe he can help me. And asks him to come up into the chariot so they can discuss what he's been reading. Four, he's serious about his faith. When Philip, starting with that passage from Isaiah, shares with him the good news of Jesus Christ, he responds, look, here's water. Let's do this. The passage ends with Philip carried away by the Holy Spirit to preach in another region and the Ethiopian continuing his journey home, rejoicing and praising God. So what are some takeaways, some food for thought from this passage for us? A man applied for a job as a handyman. The prospective employer asked, can you do carpentry? The man answered, not really. How about bricklaying? Again, the man answered, the man answered, don't know, never tried. The employer asked, well, what about electrical work or plumbing? The man said, no, don't have any experience with that. Finally, the employer said, well, then tell me, what is handy about you? The man replied, I just live right around the corner. <laughs> I don't know if Philip was a gifted communicator or an effective preacher, what I can say for sure is that he was available. He was handy. God says, start walking down that road, and he does. God says, jog alongside that chariot, and he goes. Sometimes we think, man, let me tell you something. Oh, the things that I could do for Jesus. If only I was more gifted, more talented more educated, more charismatic, more eloquent, more financially independent, etc., etc., etc. When in actuality, God is up in heaven thinking, I just wish you were more available. I'll take care of the rest. If you want to be more useful to God, start with being more available. If you want to be a conversion factor in someone else's life, be more available. Maybe you're here seeking God, seeking the truth, and you haven't taken the plunge. You haven't been baptized. Or maybe you've been drugged here. Anyone drugged here today? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I don't want to cause fights in the car on the way home. But let me say this. I remember a time when I was being drugged to churchy stuff. The only reason I started going to that campus ministry at Georgia Tech back in 1990 was because my girlfriend at the time, my, now my wife, Heather, wanted me to go with her. I was drugged. So if you've been drugged here today, that's okay. I'm glad you're here, and I hope this wasn't too painful. I do have a question for you. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he resurrected on the third day, what is preventing you from being baptized? Look, here's water. What's stopping you? What's holding you back? We offer the opportunity today to name Jesus as your Lord and Savior and be baptized. Maybe you're a baptized believer and looking for a church home. We offer that invitation as well as we move into a time of communion. Amen.